Hello and welcome back to The Movies, a pretty self-explanatory podcast. My name is Daniel Berrios and today we are doing yet another installment of In Four Films. This is the show, this is the part of the show where I bring on friends and colleagues to wax poetic about the films that make them them. It doesn't necessarily have to be their favorite movies of all time. It can just be the movies that, you know, help them see cinema in a different way, see life in a different way. It could be something that has an amazing memory attached to it. But uh, today, I am bringing on a dear friend. Uh, she writes for pretty much everybody, uh, Cherry Picks, Filmotomy, In Their Own League, Her Own Substack. She is one half of the Untitled Cinema Gals project. My friends, Miss Morgan Roberts. Thank you so much for that introduction. I am so uh, overwhelmed and humbled. And also, you can keep going if you want. <laughs> okay, let me pull up the Twitter and then just like, rattle <laughs> no. down everything. <laughs> <laughs> no, thanks so much for inviting me. I'm super happy to be here. I'm stoked to have you on. And one of the best things about this show is that every person I've brought on has completely different movies. Nobody's overlapped on this show. And so her Morgan's four films are, as I pull up I Am Daba, is 1991's Beauty and the Beast, 2011's Your Sister's Sister, 1966's, this is the oldest movie I've ever had on in four films, the Trouble with Angels, and of course, 2017's Lady Bird. So, an eclectic, awesome mix of films. I enjoy every single one of these. I don't think I've disliked a movie on in four films, but I'm gonna let you pick. Which one do you want to talk about first? I mean, let's maybe just start with the oldest one, which is, I think, kind of the curveball, super weird one that okay it's nine you know 1966 the trouble with angels it's i don't know many people who've seen this movie or grew up with this movie so i um whenever i get a chance to talk about it i always will because it's quirky and fun and it was directed by a woman which i think is also dope as hell so <laughs> We've got trouble, trouble, trouble. Yes, indeed, we've got trouble with angels. Rosalind Russell matches Wills with Haley Mills, that troublesome angel who turns a whole campus upside down. Gypsy Rose Lee is the dancing teacher with progressive ideas. Benny Barnes, the band teacher who appreciates good music with cotton in her ears. June Harding, Haley's partner in crime. What's the matter? I'm not sure I like him. Just for the heaven of it, see The Trouble with Angel. Uh, Trouble with Angels, directed by Ida Lupino, uh, with a screenplay by Blantonalis. Uh, based on a novel by Jane Trahey about these two uh, Catholic high schoolers in Catholic high school, uh, Haley Mills playing Mary and June Harding playing Rachel. They are the like 
Fred and George Weasley of this school with just yeah. pure troublemakers having a blast, not giving an entire shit about what the world kind of like wants them to be or how uh, a lady is supposed to behave. And it's just their existence in this high school for four years causing mayhem. And yeah, Throwball, because it was the oldest movie on the list that I'd ever seen before. I was like, all right, cool. I put it on and Haley Mills is just stealing the scene from like one on that bus. (laughs) Just the snark. And the sarcasm spitting out at anybody that dares cross her just loves inventing identities and realities uh, that are separate just to give herself a bit of excitement. Just, I had so much fun with it. Yeah, it's, it was, uh, like, so I remember watching the Haley Mills version of The Parent Trap a lot as a kid because I was born before Lindsay Lohan made the iconic 1998 Parent Trap. Um, so I was like a big, like Haley Mills was very big in my household. And, um, I remember my mom was just like, watch this movie. It has Haley Mills. And I was obsessed with her as a kid. And this movie just cemented that because very frequently she says a line of, I have a scathingly brilliant idea. And I would just walk around telling people that I had a scathingly brilliant idea. And it's like, you're four. You don't have that. It's not scathingly, nor is it brilliant. Um, But I just, I remember loving that so much. And it's just so interesting the way that the film kind of covers faith and like adolescence in a very human way. Um, Cause I think one of the things, especially in the sixties that was happening was Vatican two, which was like completely revamping, which obviously I didn't know when I was a kid, but as an adult, I know there was this thing called Vatican two, which was really trying to revitalize the Catholic church and especially nuns. Cause nuns were like, you know, very stoic, Um, and then the sixties really shifted to where being a nun was really seen as being someone who was giving back to their community. And, um, so I find it really interesting that this film came out right after Vatican II. And so I wonder if at all that had a piece in it because our mother superior played by the incredible Rosalind Russell. Scene stealer. I know she embodies kind of both that stoicism of, you know, that very stereotypical mean nun who hits kids with rulers type thing. (laughs) But then she also has like very human moments that make it make you understand that like her devotion to God is also her devotion to people. And I just think that that's really it's a very interesting and nuanced performance in this what could be a very screwball comedy. And it's definitely screwball. There's all the antics they've got when uh, they're smoking at in the attic and they cause <laughs> yeah. the fire alarm and all the firefighters to show up. And then, God, what they do to that one chick with the cast, fucking, oh, like, yeah. <laughs> leaving her locked in there, which sounds like something out of a horror movie, which it probably is. And there's a lot of screwball, but yeah, the best parts of this thing are just those really quiet human. There's a moment uh, set in a church 
when uh, Haley, when uh, Mary is kind of playing the silent watcher to what Sister mm-hmm. uh, Mother Superior is doing, it's a little bit. Uh, I can imagine Chris Columbus stole some of this from Home Alone. Anything in that church sequence, yeah. there's something about that sort of solemn quiet that's there, and yeah, something about dealing with faith in a way that's not so. Um, I guess one-sided and again there is the devotion to god from mother superior but it's never like explicitly this is the reason why i turn to christ sort of thing it's always just this is what i do this is part of me it's not all of me you know i weirdly enough as you're mentioning this i'm thinking of like dogma which i just watched a couple days ago and the whole christianity now thing and the idea of incorporating one's faith within one's identity and not having that faith consume you to just even like a and i again we're spoiling all of this stuff i'm sorry but that's how the movies go that's how in four films goes i don't do this on normal reviews but i do it when i'm just talking to talk but uh just the end that whole thing with uh mary and rachel and Rachel is so vehemently like, you betrayed me by going to the mm-hmm. other side. Just, and the fact that there's no real like definitive switch for Mary. It's not like she found God and then decided. It's sort of just the culmination of this is kind of what I want to do with my life. And the reason for why I did it is personal. And that's fine. You don't have to yeah. have that explained to you because it is one's personal choice to deal with faith. There's something really beautiful and like really fucking bittersweet about that in this that, yeah, it, it struck me as uh, different, especially due to the time. Yeah, and it's, and and the thing about kind of Rachel's betrayal at the end, because the whole thing is Mary decides to become a nun. And after um, raising all the hell. All the hell. All the um, hell. But I find it so interesting because she and Mother Superior were very much at odds throughout most of the film. But there are moments where, like, you know, she comes and finds Mother Superior helping Rachel with her sewing project. And just, like, the way that she sees this woman help someone who was so hopelessly going to fail at this task. Oh, yeah. Um, And, or the way that... All of a sudden, she started to care a little bit more about their school when uh, Mother Superior tells everyone that they have to win this band competition. And um, how she and she, because she's the more forceful one, right? Like, Rachel is not, Rachel doesn't make big decisions. Mary They explicitly say it. Rachel is the follower. We can mold Mm -hmm. her. But Mary is the one with an iron will. Yes. And, and so, you know, Mary's the one who talks Rachel into spying on some of the other schools so that they can figure out what their bands are doing to try to take the money. And it's, it's just like those little things, like they don't make it super explicit, as you're saying, like, there's not like this come to Jesus moment, but it's over the course of these years where all of a sudden she starts to kind of understand mother superior a little bit even when they remain at odds like she starts to understand it and i just i don't know i just think that that's really beautiful and like nuanced for that time for that type of movie i mean again it's directed by ida lupino we weren't seeing a lot of women directing movies and 
I just, I don't, it just felt like very cosmic for all of these pieces to come together to make this type of film. Like when, uh, when did you start thinking about it in this way rather than the scathingly brilliant idea way? <laughs> right. Like as you mentioned this, I remember like myself watching George of the Jungle at four years old and I'm in our apartment like jumping at walls like smacking my face into it, pretending it's a tree. When did you start thinking about this movie in the way more of like, oh, there's all these themes that are going into it and dealing with faith? Like, are you a person of faith yourself? I'm not particularly a person of faith, which I find very funny considering that two of the four films that I chose take place in Catholic schools. I was about to say, um, did you go to Catholic school or something? I didn't, didn't, did not. Um, was... My grandma did teach me how to take communion illegally, I guess, um, because <laughs> she was trying to sneak me to the right side of heaven. Um, but like, didn't grow up Catholic, um, not particularly a religious person. Um, but I, I think it was kind of one of those movies that like always stayed with me from childhood. And I got it one year my parents gave it to me one year for Christmas and I was older at the time I was going through this phase where I was trying to revisit all of these movies that I watched as a kid um and so I must have been like in my early to mid 20s and was re-watching it going like oh like yeah there it's a screwball comedy like they're smoking in the bathroom and they're you know drowning because they skipped swimming class for four years but there's also so much heart to it that's kind of you know they kind of sneak it in throughout there so it it was definitely I needed to be an adult re-watching it to be able to look past those fun moments that engage you as a kid to then be like oh oh this this has a little bit more meaning to it than I particularly remember yeah, that kind of stuff grows with you. I, I think it might also be depending on what kind of movies we watch. At a certain point, mm -hmm. if you watch enough movies, the same shit that glued you in as a kid, I think it's just a numbers thing. Like, you're not as drawn in by those particular... Like, you're not as drawn in by the screwball stuff. You get interested in the style, and then you get interested in, like, the performances, the little, like, insert shots of the boiler and, like, that ADR rumbling. And... One of the, I really do think the heart doesn't work without Rosalind Russell. Like no, if she, no. like if she doesn't look at that boiler as though she wants to say, "You motherfucker," like how fucking like this. I live here. I work here. I don't leave here. And this fucking guy can't fix this boiler, but it's all in the face. And Mary wouldn't mm -hmm. have like picked up on that if it that performance wasn't as good. You wouldn't have believed it. Yeah, like you wouldn't. You wouldn't believe Mary believing in God by the end of the film if she didn't believe in Mother Superior. Like, the, it was so... The, the film only works with Rosalind Russell doing what she does best. And I even, like, just watching Mother Superior get ready for the girls to return to school, like, yeah. I just thought that that was, like, a throwaway transitional scene but like as an adult i'm like here's this woman just keeping herself busy in anticipation because she's so excited to be where she is to have those people come back and i'm like oh this this is way more touching than i remember and also 
I didn't watch Rosalind Russell movies as a kid. And as an adult, I, you know, watched His Girl Friday and The Women. And seeing her career has also been super helpful in being able to pick up on those nuances that she adds, because now you're trained to look for those. Is this, uh, because I... All of that stuff just flew around my head like little cartoon <laughs> birds. Uh, is this a typical Rosalind Russell performance? Is she typecast kind of like as the stern one with a heart of gold? Not, no. Typically she was in screwball comedies as kind of like the leading lady. Like she was kind of almost in like a Meg Ryan type role or oh, wow. in the women she played like the busybody um, woman. Um, but what could have easily been reductive performances and what could have been very straightforward, no texture type uh, films, she adds so much to those. And especially in The Women, because The Women is a film about a group of women who are friends, who um, kind of go to their... Um, one of their friends uh, learns that her husband is cheating on her, leaving her for another woman who happens to be played by Joan Crawford, who did get typecast after that movie. Oh, wow. um, but it, it's a movie about the dynamics between women. And so often we see women as being catty. We see women not being able to work amongst each other or put aside their differences. And The Women was definitely a film that fought against those stereotypes. And I think that Rosalind Russell certainly brings that element to the trouble with angels. Because, again, you see these two people who could very much be at odds and you could lean into them being at odds. But she adds kind of the, we're at odds, but a kind of a yes, but type situation with her and her character and Haley Mills's character, especially. And yeah, she's just, she's a brilliant actress and it just was the glue for all of it. Yeah. I also, uh, and I mean, you gotta be a good editor to get those performances off as well, because she never betrays it. If you're at the point of view of Mary and Rachel, you're never going to see the, like disappointment in her when she rages she's just gonna go off and so when you flip and have that conversation uh with the other nun her best friend she's just like i wanted to like expel them but then she's got all this rationale in her, in her head like something really touching to that scene when she's getting ready for uh, class as a kid you don't see that you don't see the behind no. the scenes of school. You just think they like, you know, they're vampires. They fucking live there and then they pop up and they <laughs> yep. horrify you for eight hours a day and then go back to the coffin. But no, that anticipation and that sort of like gleefulness. And it's not like she's perky and smiley, but you see it in the saunter and the way she kind of like glides across the room with sort of this boundless energy. Again, in mixing that stoicism with that kindness. Mm -hmm. Um I also see that in the one nun who's uh, deemed as like the bombshell of the mm -hmm. of everybody, and then she's like, "Oh, I'm gonna go uh, teach uh, kids who have leprosy," and just the betrayal in that child's face is like, "What? How would you do this?" That one way of thinking that like, "Wow, you've got like the golden goose," 
why would you give that up? And it's like, no, stupid. There's like more to life than this. Really sweet stuff. Yeah, yeah. I just, this movie, one of the things too I also love about this movie, kind of leaning into that editing, is it moves so well. Like I ha- sometimes have a hard time sitting still in movies that tend to have um, almost like a repetitive narrative because it is, you're moving through them yes. year after year. And I just like the perfect balance of screwball moments, the perfect balance of those sweet touching moments, the perfect balance to be able to say like, okay, time has passed. We have seen these things happen. Um, definitely falls to the editor for that. Yeah, like I'm thinking about uh, the transitions are just these cute little moments where they like step off a bus and they talk about their hair or like Mother Superior is just laying into the wig. And these little transitions that are like cute and all, but it's never this whole like winter or like, hi, we're back in freshman year, sophomore year. The more I'm thinking about it, like the Chris Columbus thing seems more apt because it reminds me a lot of the production design, like the first couple Harry Potters. Yeah. Because this mm-hmm. giant castle, uh, you get to see just all the, I guess, the snow hitting that and all these kids dynamics. But it's never really like, OK, we have finals in three weeks, so we have to do it doesn't really stick by those rules. It just kind of goes and glides between character and character. So yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if Chris Columbus stole a lot of it from this. Yeah, which you know what? Great taste. Ida Lupino is wonderful. What else uh, has she done? Again, I'm like... Um, her biggest one would have been 1953, The Bigamist. Because not only did she direct that one, she starred in it, which was a big okay. thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, Catholic she... schoolgirls and bigamy, all right. Bi- yeah, that was... What's interesting is... Um, 1953 was like the last time she had done a movie she directed a movie and then 1966 when she is when she came back for um the trouble with angels and then she went into television um so it was like a todd field type of gap mm -hmm. in between yeah Mm -hmm. wow okay um yeah, no, this is a, just a solid, sweet film. It was fun to watch. Like, Haley Mills is just delivering on every line. And, you know, it's just one of those movies that, like, if you're a kid, like, 10, 11, 12, like, it's perfect for that age. Just yeah. a lot of rebellion, a lot of, like, learning what it's like to just be a good person and keep your identity and keep your faith without it just being spelled out for you. So, yeah, Trouble with Angels. It is available for free on Crackle. That's how you find it. Crackle. So you got a couple ads in there, but it's good. Anyway, Trouble with Angels. Done with that one. Which one do you want to go to next? Yeah, let's just go in sequential order to Beauty and the Beast, 1991. Walt Disney Pictures presents its all-new 30th full-length animated motion picture. Is anyone here? Mama, there's a girl in the castle. Girl. A girl. The classic story of Beauty and the Beast. He was a lonely beast, cursed by a mysterious spell. And she was the beautiful young girl who could set him and his kingdom free. She's the one. She has come to break the spell. They were two complete opposites. I don't want to 
anything to do with him. She is being so difficult. Until something wonderful happened. There's something sweet. Straighten up. And almost kind. Show me the smile. But he was mean and he was coarse and unrefined. And now he's dear. You look so... And so unsure. Stupid. I wonder why I didn't see it there before. It's a story filled with fun. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I beg your pardon. Adventure. Sacre bleu! Invader! And dozens of wonderful new Disney characters. Yay! Keep it down. Featuring six new songs from the Academy Award-winning composer and lyricist of The Little Mermaid. This holiday season, share the fun, the magic, and the music of an entertainment event you'll never forget. Disney's Beauty and the Beast. When I was little, my dad used to write music for children's musicals for his best friend and grew up with musical theater. Um, okay. And I remember watching Beauty and the Beast. He even remembers watching Beauty and the Beast and saying, like, this should be a Broadway musical. And I used to watch dad, this movie. Uh, does your dad like do piano? What's his instrument of choice? So his, the first instrument he learned on was guitar, but he plays, he's self-taught piano, drums, bass guitar, the mandolin. He's, oh, you God, know, I just a jack of all, I know, just a jack of all trades, horrible teacher. <laughs> he tried to teach me how to play guitar as a kid and oh, no. it did not go well for either of us i think he had a better time teaching me to drive a car than he did teaching me how to i would play really hope he had a better time teaching you to drive a car than a guitar <laughs> but i mean it ended in frustration for him many tears for me um oh, no. but we but we loved like beauty and the beast i remember as a kid just like if i was sick that was the movie that was on loop. And for my fifth birthday, um, my dad took me to go see the musical on stage. And um, I can confirm that it doesn't matter if the wolves are cartoon or people <laughs> in leotards. They scared me every single time. I think it's a little um, scarier when it's people in leotards, personally. I mean, yeah. I mean, as a five-year-old, I didn't quite put two and two together. Um, but it is a scary thing. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I just, I loved this film as a kid. And it's still one that, like, it doesn't matter what what day it is if I put it on. Like, I'm just going to sit and watch the whole thing. It just is magical. And you don't get better nothing's better than um howard ashman alan menken music they were just phenomenal so uh i guess for me this is one of those movies that i hadn't seen for 15 years and then i watched it like a month ago and it's one of those things that's like oh yeah this is as good as you remember it if mm -hmm. not better and I find it weird that history has sort of like changed this thing. Cause you know, Belle is a Disney princess and it is so much of like, 
it's seen in like the girly pantheon of like Disney movies, like Little Mermaid. Again, if it's part of that Disney princess catalog, it's all just like dresses and the romance and whatnot. And what's really struck me about this is that Belle's a supporting character, and this is for the boys. This is mm-hmm. such a wonderful satire of toxic masculinity. And the shame, I this might be really unpopular here, but like you gotta swap out Luke Evans, you gotta put in John Cena. I think John Cena would be a hilarious <laughs> Gaston. Cause he's John so Cena would be. funny. Gaston is so funny and he's so clueless. And uh just the deadpan way was you're delivering lines like, oh no, she's reading. Suddenly they start developing thoughts like thinking, oh no, that's a bad <laughs> idea. Talking about women. But uh, just watching the beast kind of like try to handle himself and be a decent human being and try to treat people with respect. Like so much of that movie is just a primer for boys to like be good men. And mm-hmm. I find it amazing that it got lost in all of that like toy marketing shuffle because this movie really like is such a solid primer for boys. I don't know. I have a a two-year-old, so I think about this stuff now. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it also kind of shows the flip side of you don't have to dumb yourself down for other people to like you as a woman. And so it's kind of like trying to take stereotypes of, oh, I'm a woman, let me make myself smaller for this man to like me. And also saying, hey... If you're going to be a decent guy, you have to take people for who they are. And you get to make, it's your decision to be better, not theirs to be better for you. Um, so I just think it's really interesting and nuanced. Yeah, just, um, for, and just on simple, just aesthetic. Whenever you watch an old Disney movie and you look at the backgrounds, as an adult, you're just like, oh my god, how painstaking each like brushstroke must be. And I think it's something that, I guess in a different way, we as children don't appreciate the work that goes into stuff like that. And I mean now, not to, I guess, bring up the CGI thing too heavily, but it's a different kind of technique. It's a different kind of painstaking work that goes into like drawing every frame mm-hmm. as opposed to like, programming it or typing in a computer i don't know i guess it's a different difficulty but just seeing it go and seeing that like classic like layers of animation as they're peering into the forest moving in is just so mesmerizing it's magic and it's magic in a way that i never really am able to tap into with cg even though i've been stunned by stuff like the water and moana on its own wavelength. Yeah. But there's something about this that really truly feels like you're sucked into a storybook aesthetically. Just all the flying buttresses in the castle and all the, uh, just, just the layer of detail in everything. Even the tattered mess in the beast's room whenever he thrashes everything. You see every like little fray on the fabric that he tears. And it's like, how the fuck do you as an artist like get to draw that how long did this take it's just animation is just magic hand-drawn is it's a different kind of thing yeah it's uh, i always just think of like that opening frame 
to where it is the castle and it's behind everything in the forest and there's a waterfall in front of it and it yeah. just it's just so be and like the stained glass i love the way that the stained glass felt both like actual stained glass but also the magic of hand-drawn animation and yeah i just i love that and then the music of course is it just slaps there's oh totally no i was watching this and i was like okay i know my son is not at the age where like he watched the lion king when he was like one he couldn't give a shit and so i was just like all right i know there's a song that's gonna get him and then when br guest kicks in that cornucopia of swirling like dinner plates and dishes and like colors and lights he's glued to the fucking thing i knew it'd get him and god what a smorgasbord like showstopper that is yeah and it's amazing that it's like in the middle of the film like it's not we're not towards the end of the film we're also not even towards the end of the first act really we're not we're nowhere near their arc you know yeah yeah and here is this like showstopper number and you're just like oh my gosh like who the hell wrote this and why is it so like just everything about it is so incredible and i always will love uh the titular song beauty and the beast especially now uh just thinking about the great angela lansbury who was just such a talent and what a way for her to be able to just uh, wrench the emotion out of every scene with not, it, she's not trying to pull the emotion. She just kind of like lulls you into it. She's like the audience's mother in a way. And that is such a comfort that I miss. And she's so funny. It's just, uh, I think trying to distract Chip from like realizing that they're falling in love just the warmness of Angela Lansbury is something I, I deeply miss. God. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it's so great. It's so great that she has this kind of everlasting uh, film for people to rent. Cause I mean, obviously she was, she's been in Disney before she was in uh, bed knobs and broomsticks and she was in murder. She wrote, which cemented her in television and she's been on stage, but I think that Beauty and the Beast is such a wonderful, wholesome memory for so many audiences to have as their first introduction to her. Yeah. Also, I didn't realize how saucy this thing got. Like, Lumiere's horny (laughs) as hell. Like, everything with Lumiere, I'm sitting there just like, how did they get away with this shit? Well, he's French, so... um... Okay, and there's like a lady with... (laughs) He's trying to get in some lady's ass throughout the end of the movie. I'm just like, what? They let this slide? Okay. I mean, it is Disney. They like to sneak slightly inappropriate things into I guess their they, movies. I guess they do. Oh, something I didn't think about, uh, and I wanted to ask. So, the Beast has to love someone by their uh, tw- by his 21st birthday, right? And at, earlier mm-hmm. in the film, they're talking about how they've been trapped there for 10 years. And... I was hung up on this whole, like, toxic masculinity, like, this you-have-to-learn-how-to-be-a-good-human thing. And so I wasn't sure if the beast... So I'm assuming the beast ages, right? But no one else in the castle does. 
Because otherwise, like, Chip, if he were, like, a little boy, he'd be, like, 20 now, right? When he comes back? Like, they're frozen in time? Maybe. Or maybe the Beast was frozen with them, too. I am unsure. Because it would be... It would make sense. But also, it do- the math doesn't make sense. Um... And I was, I was trying to think, because, like, he has to age because it's the whole, your 21st birthday. So you've got a time ticking represented by the rose petals falling. So what I was thinking was, okay, if he's been stuck like this for 10 years, that he got cursed at one of the most crucial points of a child's development from 10 to, like, 21. Your entire teenage years are fueled quite literally by this id-driven like monstrous like he's hairy he stinks he's grouchy like it's a puberty movie man yeah he's stuck in eternal he's stuck in puberty dealing with that at its full extreme without any real like resources to help him out outside of you know the um the servants who are you know i guess subservient to him through whatever feudal system Mm -hmm. and monarchy or whatever whatever but i just found that fascinating that he is stuck through that period of time and through one of the most crazy raging hormonal periods to be a guy you have to learn to love someone unconditionally and be a good Mm -hmm. human being there is a portion of that though that gives me like there's a portion of this that bothers me though it bothers me that she has to love him back in order for him to be cursed. Because I feel if, like that's a morality thing. That as long as he learned the lesson that he fucked up on, he should be fine. And I know it's a fairy tale thing and maybe that's borrowed from the original story or whatever. But I really do feel like it's kind of weird that she has to love him back in order to complete the, the cycle. Like him letting her go should have been enough, I think. But at the same time, it's, you don't want to see Prince Adam. You want to see the Beast. Right, right. Yeah, I'm I'm also just trying to think back to the, um, there was an old, like, 1940s, 1950s French oh, version yeah. of Beauty and the Beast, um, which also highly recommend that one. Um, I don't think that he was 11 years old when he was turned into a beast in that version. Um, but I think part of it is, so much of like fairy tales especially in like modern adaptations we've turned fairy tales into like love stories we just find that very interesting um which i also find fascinating that we're okay with love stories in like a fantastical way but we really like to shit on rom-coms even though that's what they're there for um I also find, and we also know that most fairy tales, if there's a love story involved, Disney makes them way happier than they actually are. Like, That's true. Little Mermaid was mm. all sorts of met, like mm. upsetting and sad. Um, <laughs> Hunchback so, of Notre Dame. Oh no. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> just watch the Charles Lawton version of that and then watch the Disney version and see what liberties were taken for children. Um, yeah, so it's, it's really interesting kind of the way that 
we want to talk about love stories, but we do it in very weird, sometimes unhealthy ways, um, especially when we're doing it for children. Like it's always heteronormative. It is super fast. Like they fall in love after two days. Um, I don't like most people that fast just in general. So um, it's like there's, you have the fantastical elements of a fairy tale. And so I think that they also kind of use fantastical elements in a love story. So it's, it, it's not always great, but for all of the love stories that there could be in a Disney movie, I, at least Belle was doing it for herself because she didn't have to Yeah. love him. Like she didn't have to, like we already saw that, Gaston was harassing her all of the time and she never gave in. So I think part of it too was also her learning that she didn't have to sacrifice herself to love someone. Mm. Um, and so that's what makes it a little bit more of a palatable love story in my book. Um, because she didn't have to change for him. Um, she got, he learned to love her just as much as she learned to love him with all of his best parts and all of his faults. And so I think that, again, there are worse love stories and fairy tales out there. No, you're right. And uh, I don't know, there should be... Because she has the whole, like, I want a great, I want adventure in the great wide somewhere. And then the rest of the movie is uh, her, like... For one, it's a brave sentiment just to, like, let go of that and have, like... Of course, she's sad that she's stuck in the castle, but there is no hesitation at all to give herself up for her father. Like, there's no yeah. bullshit about, like, I'm giving up my dreams or whatever. It's just that quick motion, which tells me uh, girl's got her priorities, and she, she just loves that man that much. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess, sidebar, did we ever realize how violent that battle gets at the end? Like, it is so violent. <laughs> holy shit. Knives. People getting burned fuckers getting impaled any matter of like deadly force being used by these cute cartoon characters it just struck me like even the uh the contraption that her dad has to chop wood seeing that thing flying at you is horrific and i just yeah the cartoon violence it's america's fascination with violence against love fascinatingly weird history behind that one uh, who who uh who got you interested in like older cinema by the way because you're pulling out references oh oh my dad um we used to watch turner classic movies all the time or before amc had commercials and tv shows every friday night they used to have uh like old horror movies so i was like right. really into vincent price movies oh, um, yeah yeah so the great mouse detective would be my second favorite Disney oh, wow. movie because it has Vincent Price. Vincent Price in it, yeah. Mm-hmm. So is he like uh is he like the giant movie buff or is it just like, oh, there are a bunch of musicals back then, so let me just bring you into this? Well, so both my parents really love movies. Like that's kind of always been the way like obviously my dad likes music, um, has written music, um, but they both love movies and it's so it was really interesting because my dad 
I've had to introduce him to movies from the 21st century because he doesn't go to movie theaters. Um, mm. And it's always so interesting to watch him. I mean, he does when I force him. Uh, but it's interesting to watch him find m- more modern movies that he likes. Like, you know, he's a big John Carter fan. He owns San Andreas on Blu-ray. But then Hell yes, he- <laughs> San Andreas. He's <laughs> but great. Then he- but then he loves The Favorite. He um, says that he, like, if Lars and the Real Girl is on, he will stop and watch it from whatever As point. he should. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's very interesting the way that, you know, he introduced me to a lot of older movies. And as I've gotten older, I'm like, hey, did you know that you should enjoy Ryan Gosling movies? Because you <laughs> should. <laughs> That's really rad. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess I have a similar relationship with my dad. He's retired, and so he's able to, like, like it, it kind of sucks, because, like, back in the day, uh, he was really busy with work, and uh, I was, like, I, I don't know, it's sort of bittersweet, like, being an adult now and being too busy, but he'll, like, message me at 2 in the morning and just be like, hey, have you seen this movie called Bone Tomahawk? And I was like, no, Dad. It's like two and a half hours long. He's like, yeah, it's great. You should go watch it. And this is, you know, Baptist Dad. Like, I never would think he'd be into something like that grisly. But uh, I don't know. It's just been nice seeing that sort of, like, side of himself that was so reserved and, like, stuck in work or not. Like, he blossomed. Like, he talks Mm -hmm. to me about cooking incessantly and he's like oh i fucking ordered this like spice it was like 36 bucks i got it from china it was great and i'm like what yeah just... it's it's really fun that role revert like i also just really enjoy um my dad loves the quiet place movies and so he has watched now a bunch of really random emily blunt films and i'm like <laughs> good for you but also who are you <laughs> your dad got hooked on emily blunt from a quiet place and not the devil wears prada which is the not the devil bitch. wears prada no not uh, the devil wears prada but he literally is like i mean i did make him watch um sunshine cleaning which is my favorite emily blunt film but um yeah, he was just like randomly like, I'm watching this Emily Blunt movie. And I'm like, how do you know who she is? How, what is happening? It's like, he's like, I read credits too. You're not the yeah. only one with an MDBA. I can yeah, figure this I, out. I know what Wikipedia is. <laughs> All right, so Emily Blunt, perfect segue. Let's do it. Uh, it is the perfect segue. I thought you were setting us up. You're not? I did not. No. I Look at you. I, it's just that's the first person that I thought of because that really Morgan Robbins, folks, and jokes. That's what she's doing. I miss you. I miss my friend. Oh, this is this is that moment, isn't it? This is This is your intervention. Whatever you think is helping you, I have a responsibility as your friend to tell you that it's not. Just tell me what to do. You know that nice red bicycle that you have? Yes. You're going to dust off Old Red, and you're going to get on a ferry. I'm sending you to my dad's place. There's no TV, there's no internet, there's nothing. It's just you. Do they have forks? It's just you and we have a couple of forks, yeah. I might need to stab myself in the face. <laughs> ah! Sorry, sorry, sorry! Ah! I'm out of the wrong house, and I, I... Hey, you're Hannah. 
Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm Iris's friend, Jack. You're on an island, it's three in the morning, and you're drinking by yourself. What's going on? I just walked out on a seven-year relationship. Whoa. Hence the tequila. I gotta say, not so terrible to have a drinking buddy. That's going down, terrible. getting weird. <laughs> How, what, why are you, what, how did the, what are you doing here? You don't think she'd be upset if you told her we had sex? Why? Because she's your sister. <gasps> I'm yeah. her best friend, and it's weird. Do you have a thing for my sister? I, I do not have a thing for your sister. On my way back home. Do you like Jack? I don't know, he seems like a nice guy. I think I'm in love with him. <laughs> You're right. It's um, better if she's in love. It's the first time I've seen you look really happy in a long time. I just feel like I should tell him. What's the matter? Why are you being so quiet? I have to tell you something. Why? Why did it have to be him? I really think your face is going to annoy me right now. My face always annoys you. Your Sister's Sister from 2011, directed by Lynn Shelton, about a guy whose brother recently passed. His best friend is, uh, he's played by Mark Duplass. His best friend's played by Emily Blunt. And Emily Blunt is like, dude, you've been in a funk. You're being a jerk to everybody. Just go. Get, like, go to my family's vacation home for a week. The fresh air. Nobody you know. It'll do you some good. He shows up. Meets her sister, played by Rosemary DeWitt, and they have like a connection, and that connection gets weird, and then it gets even weirder when Emily Blunt shows back up to visit, and it's just watching this. Uh, I get it might be. I think it's a comedy. Yeah, comedy of errors. Let's go with that. Yeah, one. yeah. I'm yeah. gonna go with that. It's watching the comedy of errors play out, and uh, this one. Uh, I'm going to start because I watch movies at work. I am very fortunate to, like, if everybody has left me alone, I can kind of just put on Prime and, you know, pause the video when I walk away, pause the video when I come back. And so I'm watching this, and I'm like, okay, there's definitely drama here. It's like this sort of rom-com drama that's going on, and, you know, all these performances are really solid. But I'm like, but when, like, I don't know, it just feels like it's a decent, like, the tension's not really there. It's just like a dramatic tension. And then the fucking bomb hits. And I'm like, excuse me, what the fuck? And that just blew my mind. If you've not seen this movie, your sister's sister, uh, you got to rent it, but rent it because it's great. Uh, just this fantastic three-hander between Duplass, Blunt, and DeWitt just having a grand old time being, you know, deliciously fucked up people. And I won't dare spoil that for you if you haven't seen it. Just go watch yeah. and go watch it. But we're going to get into it. And uh, I, guess I'll, I guess I should yeah. probably just say, uh, what brought you to this movie? I, so I'm a big... Um... A hipster, I guess, because I 
before I went to Sundance, I would always track what films had come out of Sundance because I just have always been drawn to the independent filmmakers that have showcased, you know, have showcased their work there. And so like that was my thing. So I would pick like one or two films that came out of Sundance, follow them until I could finally get to be able to see it. And um, I have not been extremely disappointed at all, which I think is a good sign. That's good. Um, but yeah, so Your Sister's Sister was one that I picked and I was like, you know, it has Rosemary DeWitt who um, at the time would have been on um, the United States of Terra, which is... Fuck. Yeah, that's how I know so her. So amazing. Under-fucking-rated. So underrated. And she's fantastic on that show. Oh, it's three truly. seasons, everyone. Go watch it. Um, three seasons. I mean, they probably canceled it because the ending's not great. But you could tell yeah. they kind of like rushed it. But uh, Brie Larson as a baby. Kira Gilchrist from It Follows as a baby. Our mother, Tony Collette. And uh, yeah. John Corbett, who's a snack. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's so, it's just so good. Patton oh, Oswalt oh. shows up. And uh, Craig Gillespie, director of Itania. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Solid. He did a lot of the first season, I think. And it, yeah, yeah. it's a great series. And so, like, she's wonderful. Um, I wasn't super familiar with Mark Duplass at the time, which I find funny and interesting because he is such a huge um, mumblecore person. And then, of course, this is the kind of big blind spot for the hipster crowd, huh? I know, I know. Um, And then Emily Blunt, of course, Devil Wears Prada, Sunshine Cleaning. I love Emily Blunt. Um, And so I, um, yeah, followed this movie. It never was released anywhere near me. So I blind bought it. And I just remember watching it going like, I think this might be one of the most magical movies I've ever watched because it's not, it's not big. It's just three normal people who are normal amounts of fucked up coming together at very big moments in their lives. Like, you know, Mark Duplass has lost, his character's lost his brother. Uh, Rosemary DeWitt shows up because the person that she thought she was going to build a family with broke up with her. Um, Emily Blunt's character, I believe it's hinted at in the film that she was dating Mark Duplass's brother, but she actually find, has a crush on Mark Duplass's character. Yeah. And the three of them have to come in. They all in a moment of happenstance are together in their pain and their awkwardness but also their humanness and um yeah it was the film that made me fall in love with lynn shelton's work um i'm a huge fan of her movies um she's kind of like the best example of mumblecore um because you know as duplass brothers joe schwamberg even jeff baina um i would consider to be kind of mumblecore because most of those films are outlines with then the actors creating the dialogue. And Lynn Shelton was actually an act, she went to school for acting. And so I think that she was always able to draw out some of the most incredible performances from her actors because she knew how to speak their language without showing her own hand on how she wanted to direct the film. Um, 
So that's a very long answer because I I love this movie. <laughs> no, it's it's good. I like it quite a bit. Uh, what do you consider mumblecore? By the way, I've heard the term, and I've I've heard that uh, Greta Gerwig is like part of the mumblecore crowd. What what is so yeah? Her early work would have been mumblecore because most like of Francis mumblecore. Hall. Um, even before that, I think there, she has this film called, I think it's Addition, a Spoon or something like that. Or she used to work with, or Baghead is an early, uh, Greta Gerwig movie. I'm really pulling out some random (laughs) movies for people to watch. Um, but most of Mumblecore is, um, so most of them do not have structured scripts in the sense that shots are set up shots are that there's dialogue for the actors that there's actions for the actors basically what they have is an outline of in this scene we want these three characters to be doing this type of thing together and that's all they have and so then they have to improvise that scene together and so your sister's sister is a perfect example of how it's done right so there's a scene in the movie where they're all having dinner together And Rosemary DeWitt tells a very embarrassing story about her sister. In this case, it was a true story about her sister, but she's having to say it like it's Emily Blunt. Um, Wearing a swimsuit and it being a little um, revealing in the crotch area. A little bit. A little bit. And um, so Lynn Shelton tells them like you guys are going to have dinner together you're going to sit there and you're going to talk and then she walks up to rosemary dewitt and is like hey do you have like a super embarrassing story about your sister and she's like i've got like a couple and she's like what are what do you have so she you know kind of hints like okay i think i have like this one might be okay and she's like okay and then she walks away and she has these actors kind of start get into the scene together and then Rosemary DeWitt can tell this super embarrassing story and after so Lynn Shelton has sadly passed away but and after her death um Emily Blunt was interviewed about working with her and she said if you watch that scene the vein in my forehead pops out because I was physically so embarrassed that was my natural reaction (laughs) um and so mumblecore is so much of that it is these actors coming together with the skeleton of what a film is supposed to look like and them filling it in to make a human, in essence. And sometimes it works beautifully. Lynn Shelton's movies I recommend as the perfect example. Sometimes they're a little bit messy. Um, Like Joe Schwamberg has this movie called uh, Digging for Fire, that just feels like a whole bunch of people doing a whole bunch of stuff and none of it makes sense. Even though you have <laughs> Jake Johnson and Rosemary DeWitt and Brie Larson and Anna Kendrick okay. and Orlando Bloom in it. So it's, you have to really fine tune it. Um, but that's in essence kind of what mumblecore is, is nitty gritty filmmakers. Most of them work in cities but not in like new york or los angeles like it's chicago lynn shelton was in seattle so yeah it's a very niche little genre yeah she uh 
reading or at least watching interviews for this, he's mentioned Seattle as like the sort of like semi incestuous hub where everybody just works with everybody. And uh, I don't know, it was weird. Uh, I watched this interview after my wife started talking to me about like wanting to move out of Texas because, you know, it's a Republican hellhole. But uh, she kept mentioning Seattle, and I was like, I don't know if there's a lot of like, movie stuff there. And then, boom, I watched this interview the next day, and I'm just like, okay, this is getting weird. Like, I don't know if I should be taking this as a sign or not. I don't know. There's also this it's weird feeling of... I don't know, but it's also this weird feeling in my heart, too, like, you know... If I leave, I'm one of the spots of blue in a red state, yeah. at least. Like, that's, I don't know, there's, like, a political nervousness to it. And also, the whole, like, my family's here, and I don't know yeah. if we have the stability to stay. Anyway, but uh, watching her talk about how this thing, I think this thing was done in 12 days. And mm -hmm. I think she wanted to do this one, like, while she was waiting for another film to be made. She's like, all right, let's just fucking grab everybody, go, summer camp, let's do this thing. And watching that play out, definitely the improvisation is there. And some really funny bits. Like, God, you've got to be a really good editor to make this kind of shit pull mm -hmm. off. And I think that's got to be it. If, um, if you don't have a strong editor, somebody who ultimately knows what the ship needs to look and sound and feel like, that you can't really piece all these raw materials. And I don't know, it's like the world's strangest game of Minecraft, I guess. But I don't know. Something about this one, uh, watching everybody kind of pull themselves together, Mark Duplass is just deeply irresponsible. It just, mm -hmm. uh, irresponsible, not in the typical slacker way. It's more of like the, uh, I've let the circumstances of the world get me down for so long that mm -hmm. I, by refusing to accept responsibility that it happened and I have to live with it and move on and just sinking into this like deep ass depression. Uh, funny as fuck, Mark Duplass in this one. Uh, it's him talking about steak to vegan Rosemary DeWitt. Fantastic. It's a great conversation we ha want to have with most vegans. Uh, anybody's choice is their choice, but that's fine. It's, I don't know. Yeah. Just watching him slowly get his shit together outside of just being an almost insufferable anxious mess throughout like 75% of it. It is pretty stunning seeing that guy pull this thing off. Uh, who's your favorite character in this one? Um, I was, I mean, came for Emily Blunt, stayed for Rosemary DeWitt. I think she's kind of, the thing about Lynn Shelton's movies, and I think that, again, this one is just so magical to me, is that she is not interested in, I'm 20 years old, and oh no, I don't have my life figured out yet. She is interested in, I'm 35 and I fucked up again. <laughs> She's interested in my life. I had this expectation that my life would be perfect and I'd have my shit together. And guess what? I'm just as human as I was at 22 as I am at 42. And I, she just had such a beautiful way of showcasing that in a very human and empathetic manner. And um, she and Rosemary DeWitt, this was the first time that they worked together. And I think that Rosemary DeWitt is just so, she's just so amazing in this because she is sitting there as a person with all of her ruined expectations. And she is both endlessly heartbroken and 
equally too stubborn to admit that that's where she's sitting. Um, and I just, I just think that she's so fantastic. Yeah. Watching her, I guess, navigate, uh, all these situations with just like a boatload of secrets in her eye, you know, like no matter who she's talking to, it always feels like she's holding something back. And, uh, that feeling of like of composure you want to keep composed and you don't want to break down even though that's ultimately where you're headed and i mean it's weird because you have her like there's like a wealth of scenes that have to be there before the fucked up shit that she does to mark duplass happens like i want to see the bathroom scene where she's debating to herself what to do with that condom and uh mm-hmm. was there even a debate was it just like oh my god i've got an opportunity like fueled by whatever weird opportunity you have to be a mother and uh also think about that too like she wants to be a mom in a stage of her life where she is like viciously unstable emotionally and mm-hmm. i think it's just that she doesn't want to be a mom she just wants to feel like she has her shit together mm-hmm. I, I mean there's part of it kind of does kind of feel like I should have already had this by now because I'm at a stage in my life where probably everyone in her life has children or consciously made the choice that they're not going to have children. Um, And she also comes from a family where it seems like people have children to fix their problems because Emily Mm. Blunt's character is technically her half-sister because their dad left rosemary dewitt's mom to get with emily blunt's mom and that's kind of like that relationship um but it could also just be too like she you know she wanted a family and the person that she was with one day just woke up and said hey remember that thing that we both wanted i don't want that anymore and so she's trying to retain some of that too and it's what I love about this movie is it's not just one thing. It's not one thing that's driving her to make that decision. It's all these little things that all compound to the singular moment. And I think that that's what makes it so special too. Cause I think that we're always looking for a single incident to be the single catalyst for this moment when really it's a person's entire life culminating to this one moment. Yeah. No, you, no, you're right. There's this, uh, everybody wants to go to therapy in five seconds and have that emotional yes. breakthrough and then fix your <laughs> shit. But no, you're, you're more fucked up in multiple ways than you can imagine. And a hell, Emily Blunt is, is fucked up in her way. Cause the, I don't know. There's an image. You just put it in my head when you were talking about her character that what if the only reason she dated uh, Mark Duplass's brother mm-hmm. is because, you know, if you can't be with the one you're with, if you can't have that guy be love the one you're with type of scenario? Mm-hmm. I hadn't thought about that. And that's like a weirdly also, like, there's like a pre-potential foreshadowing to what's going on with him hooking up with uh, Rosemary DeWitt out of just like tequila and stupidity. And mm-hmm. one of my favorite, my favorite sex scenes are the ones that take place in real time. Yes. Because that shit is hilarious. Mm-hmm. It's just three pumps, efficient, he's in and out. And like at a certain point, you just sit there and you're like, 
you're at Rosemary DeWitt's point. You're just like, wait, are we done? Did you? Mm-hmm. What? Yeah, it's just fucking funny. And I also love something about just like them fumbling around. I really love that in movies when it mm-hmm. feels like messy and like silly. Like you can laugh during sex because, you know, the cat is like jumped on the bed next to you or like you can't pull somebody's pants off as like swoop effective it's not like a fucking tablecloth on something you fumble with it and just i don't know those moments that they're able to capture and i guess it's again shelton's direction and the editing being able to pull off these moments that feel Mm -hmm. human without losing the overarching narrative or at least the theme of all of this yeah and i believe that shelton used an editor but she actually used to edit films too And so I think that that's one of the things that made her such a great director is that she knew what she wanted, but also knew that there were places and people that could do it a little bit better than her too. Um, She just kind of always let people shine. Um, And yeah, just love, love her work. Yeah. I think she mentioned that she was working with a writer for the first Mm -hmm. time and it was just like a relief off her or like something you know like it was a fun experience getting to like be with someone that you trust creatively and collaboratively but also someone who can take the load off or like provide a different perspective or something like that i don't know that seattle scene that she talks about very much feels like just like-minded buddies you know you hold Mm -hmm. the boom i write the script i'll edit because i have a laptop oh you have a camera all right you're a cinematographer like that sort of uh Mm -hmm. diy aesthetic it's just something i'm always attracted to okay so uh she cuts holes in the condom and for a second i was like what is he so obsessed with like him like the way he talks to rosemary dewitt about like don't tell her we had sex don't tell her we had sex Mm -hmm. is such like a juvenile in the sense of somebody who wouldn't even be old enough to know what sex is like just be Mm -hmm. cool and it didn't hit me until the twist happened where that uh is this my kid is this gabriel hi gabe (laughs) i thought he opened the door by himself i didn't know he knew how to turn the doorknobs yet my bad (laughs) sorry what's going on oh okay yeah she says I might want to lock it when there's just like an open doorknob, but I mean we'll push the door close. But uh, yeah, that's Gabriel on the podcast, ladies and gentlemen, diaper and all. <laughs> but uh, what was I going to? Just a. She pokes holes in the condom, and it's that weird dramatic tension that is built up from Mark Duplass that it didn't get until the bomb hit. And now you watch mm-hmm. that idea again, and it's like, oh, this is, that's where the tension is. That's where the weirdness is supposed to be setting you up for. It's not just him being insecure. It's Shelton being like, okay, we need to kind of guide you toward this, because once this drops, it's going to hit. And I'm walking around my jaw, just jaw drop, like, oh my god, girl, what? What? And, of course, nobody in my job is understanding what the hell is going on. I was like, girl, you gotta watch this. This is some wild <laughs> shit going down. And uh, just the way that bit is edited, too, whenever Emily Blunt finally, like, finds out and loses her fucking shit, great. Mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah. And even her kind of afterwards, I love the part where she kind of goes off on her own and he follows her and she is just in tears saying like, I can't look at your stupid face right now. And it is both her saying that like sincerely, like she just cannot look at him, but she's also almost kind of wanting her friend to make it all better at the same time. It's yes. so heartbreakingly good. Uh, it's like seeking comfort in the person that hurt you. Like that line, I can't look at your stupid face. It's funny. It's sweet. It's like, you know, like some, you hold your lover's face in their hands or whatever, but God, you fucking dumbass. And I always think, you know, if he'd accepted responsibility and just be like, hey, I'm, I, we were drunk, whatever, like how would that play out? Like, like, do you think she'd be all right without, like, this big emotional, like, whirlwind that you have to, like, overcome? If he would have just straight out said, like, oh, yeah, I had sex with her. Like, what do you think? You think they... I mean, I think she would have still been hurt. I don't think that it would have felt... I don't think that she probably would have exploded to the... Because she seems to be someone, at least at the beginning of the film, to, like, compartmentalize her emotions a bit. Um... Yeah. But I think because she got to be amongst the two people that she thought that she could trust the most and mm. her guard got to come down that all of a sudden not only was there that betrayal, which she would have been upset about anyways, yeah. but it is they let her be vulnerable and feel okay. And then she got to learn this horrible betrayal. So, yeah. Uh, and uh, I guess the last question about this one is uh is she pregnant i mean i don't know i like that we don't know i like that we don't know either that's not what the movie's about but yeah yeah it's not i i like that there's that ambiguity because then there's also like well what if she is i mean what if she isn't then all of a sudden it's like well nice try i have my friend mike berbiglia's unnamed character that you can maybe do this with versus what happens if she is like how do they interact with each other if this is the case but at the same time like let's just for a moment not even have to worry about that yeah i mean that's not where that's not what the movie's about it's about you know like rosemary dewitt finally able to let like walls down and be uncomfortable and like admit that she wants something out of this life that she hasn't been able to have yet and it's about him taking responsibility and it's about emily blunt finally like growing like getting off her you know getting out of the i don't know the wallflowers chair and finally saying mm -hmm. i love you and like that's the shit that matters and, but though i kept thinking like god I mean, she's got to be pregnant because that's, you know, that's the kind of in more interesting thing. And mm -hmm. I don't know, like, I don't know if he would continue on this path of responsibility if that, if he wasn't forced to, essentially, by circumstance. Like, mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I guess, I guess, I guess this the whole, like, you don't go to therapy and have, like, a one breakout moment. So, like, yeah. this one pregnancy is not going to fix all your problems type of shit. But I guess it's the hope or the idea that we can change that's the better notion to hang our hat on, I guess. Yeah. 
Yeah, that there's there is no permanence in pain just as much as there's no permanence in ecstasy. So you just kind of have to be able to move from one thing to the next. Deep. All right, we go to the last movie, which is 2017's Lady Bird. I hate California. I want to go to the East Coast. I want to go where culture is, like How New York. How in the York, world did I raise such a Or at least snow. Connecticut or New Hampshire, where writers live in the get woods. get into those schools anyway. Mom! You should just go to City College. You know, with your work ethic, just go to City College and then to jail, and then back to City College, and then maybe you'd learn to pull yourself up and not expect everybody to do everything. <laughs> Lady Bird, is that your given name? Yeah. Why is it in quotes? I gave it to myself. It's given to me by me. Lady Bird always says that she lives on the wrong side of the tracks, but I always thought that that was like a metaphor. But there are actual train tracks. What she did was very baller. It was very anarchist. Put the magazine back! <laughs> She has a big heart, your mom. She's warm, but she's also kind of scary. You can't be scary and warm. I think you can, your mom is. So, you're not interested in any Catholic colleges? No way. I want schools like Yale, but not Yale because I probably couldn't get in. <laughs> you definitely couldn't get in. Does mom hate me? If you're tired, we can sit down. I'm not tired. You were dragging your feet. You are so infuriated. stop yelling? I'm not yelling. Oh, it's perfect. Do you love it? You both have such strong personalities. When is a normal time to have sex? You're having sex? I'm ready. Just wanted it to be special. Why? You're gonna have so much unspecial sex in your life. We're afraid that we will never escape our past. Whatever we give you, it's never enough. It's never enough. It is enough. We're afraid of what the future will bring. We're afraid we won't be loved. You can't do anything unless you're the center of attention. We won't be liked. Yeah, well, you know your mom's tits, they're totally fake. She made one bad decision in 19. Two bad decisions. And we won't succeed. I want you to be the very best version of yourself that you can be. What if this is the best version? What I'd really like is to be on Math Olympiad. But math isn't something you're terribly strong in. That we know of yet. Directed by Greta Gerwig, starring Sir Ronan, the, uh, in, uh, like, the indomitable Beanie Feldstein, because she's kick-ass in this thing, uh, Laurie Metcalf, Tracy Letts, uh, God, what's the kid's name? Hugh, uh, got, her boyfriend, got, her boyfriend. Lucas, yeah, Lucas, Lucas Hedges. Hedges. And I think Jerry. And, <laughs> I mean, it is a movie from the early 2000s. Jared was a very common name then. You know what? You might be right. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, we have Timothy Chalamet. Timmy. Ah, <laughs> uh, Timmy, you pretentious fuck. You're always, you're perfect. That's a pretentious fuck. In everything. Oh, man. Okay, we saved this one for last because I have a feeling. Is this your favorite? This is my favorite movie. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let me do something here. Do you remember go walking to the theater 
Do you remember the day? I'm trying to think if I... Because I did see this movie multiple times in theaters. But I do... So there's a little independent movie theater near where I live. Um, And I know that I went there to see that movie. Because I know that I'd been tracking this movie for 8 million years. It was Was on my watch list. Was this a Sundance tracking? (laughs) No. This was just a... I saw that Greta Gerwig was finally directing a movie. And I... I mean, I love Greta Gerwig's work so much she's a phenomenal actress um i'm super excited to see her in white noise this year um because i've missed i've missed her in front of the camera um she um her film mistress america is also a movie that i love and more people should see it and so when it was announced that she was finally like writing and directing her this film i was like hell yeah I'm going to go the minute that I can see this. And I did just that. And I remember laughing and sobbing throughout this movie. All right. So why this one? I, I've i noticed as I'm watching all of this, I'm like, okay. And if you take like one second to learn about Morgan, you know that like women, <laughs> it's Saoirse yeah. Ronan's little women <laughs> gift. There's that one. Women. There's the Catholicism, which I thought was interesting. Uh, do you have a sister? Accidental. I don't. No. You don't. Are you an only kid? No, I have a, I have a brother. Okay. I was like, so there's sisters. There's like people like rebelling against the status quo. Like what, what is your like uh, movie crack? Like what makes you love a movie more than anything else? I think so I love movies by women I inadvertently three of these four movies are directed by women um and I think that I love women telling the stories of women um whether I walked in those shoes or not I think that they're just there's like an authenticity and just an understanding that we don't always get to see and like Lady Bird is certainly a film that I felt like very much of a reflection of my you know precocious equally insecure and absolutely full of myself um (laughs) 17 year old human um and so yeah I just I love films by women and I just think that we tell our stories in such a human and interesting way that whether all of it is our truth or not, we understand who that woman is. Uh, did you have a nickname growing up? I, interestingly, had a nickname that my friend in middle school gave me, and it was Judy, which not part of my name at any which I find really funny because Lady Bird is not short for Christine. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, my friends used to call me Judy and that was just like the nickname that I had in middle school. And then when I went to high school, everyone was very confused by it. But I was like, yep, that's the name that I identify with, I guess. And we're just going to go with it. Did they give you a rationale as to why Judy? Um, so my friend heard someone, it was like on the intercom, someone was like, Judy, we need you to go to the office. And my friend's like, your ride's here, Judy, go get it. And I was like, 
not that's not <laughs> for me. And you know, when you're 13, you're like, wow, comedy gold, you should write for <laughs> SNL. And it unfortunately, I was like, and you're and I told my friend, you're gonna forget to call me this. Like you're this is just you being 13 and high on sugar. Oh, no. And the next morning she came in and she was like, what's up, Judy? And it stuck. <laughs> oh, that's a challenge. You fucked up. That's a challenge accepted. <laughs> it, was, it was a challenge. It was a challenge accepted, but it was the funniest. Because <laughs> people would get so confused. They were like, did someone really in the early 90s name their child Judy? Like, who would have done that? <laughs> someone in the early 90s. <laughs> Damn, okay. Judy hatred. Judy. They were like, that's not... Uh, uh, and you're going to tell me there's a Barbara in her class, I was about too? to say, who the fuck is Gertrude? Is there a Myrtle <laughs> yeah. in the house? Weird. Uh... One of the things that I remember, I never think this when I watch movies, and when I do get it right, I feel like a savant. Like, I remember watching mm -hmm. this weird, uh, this comedy, 21 and Over, and watching Miles Teller be, like, a douche in that film, and I'd be like, you know what? This guy's, like, stealing the scene. I think he's gonna do something. Like, I think he's really good. Yeah. And then, boom, whiplash, and then Top Gun, and then whatever. I'm right. And then I remember watching Lady Bird thinking oh, this is a director nom. Like, she could get in for director. Because, like, it, everything in this movie feels like it comes out of this lady's cranium. Like, something yeah. about the way she frames that house, the color of the house, is like that powder, baby blue, Norman Rockwellian shade of blue. And uh, the way she's just going across, like... God, the way that movies usually, like, oh, it takes place in 2002, so we're just going to open up Spotify, type in 2002, and just go down the list. Yep. No, Dave Matthews Band is the one that gets you because everybody exists not in the microcosm of the year they exist in, but they exist in the past and whatnot. And so, like, of course she'd like Dave Matthews Band and just... I, I don't know, the way this thing travels along that's both a story of like a mom trying to do the goddamn best that she can mm -hmm. a woman who does feel herself stuck with like unfulfilled promise and is relenting some of that on her daughter but then also the daughter being like i don't want to end up like my parents like painstakingly aware of that shit and the way the movie balances between both of those perspectives i always thought was just really heartwarming and fascinating i guess it's akin to trouble with angels too the idea mm -hmm. that if you're 17, you can watch it from one perspective. If you're like 29, you can watch it from the other. And just, I don't know, really, I think it just comes from somebody that is in that crossroads and is able to kind of inhabit both spaces at once. And that mm -hmm. really, I find it sweet. I find it like a gift. I don't know, yeah. I'm 29. I feel like I'm entering that part of my realm where I'm like, understanding both the kids that I work with and also my parents and like mm -hmm. everything's starting to make a little bit more sense now and yeah I find it like a, I find like movies like this a gift like if you're able to tell this type of story at this time in your life it really is a, a gift that keeps on giving it is it it kind of reminds when I was younger one of my favorite tv shows was my so-called life which um early Claire Danes, uh, highly recommend. Mm. It's only 19 episodes. Um, but it balances 
her story with her mom played by the incredible Bess Armstrong. And I remember watching that series when I was 12, just going like, wow, her mom is so mean. Who would make her have a curfew and hates that she dyed her hair red? And I've been rewatching it as a 31-year-old adult. And I'm like, okay, so I think I might have been too hard on Patty when I was a kid. <laughs> because there, there really is just kind of like that when you're 17 and you think that everyone in the world sees you but also only all of the worst things about you, it's really hard to sit there and try to empathize with a grown-up who has now lived past that versus being a grown adult going like, oh, I remember that. I remember that feeling of pining after someone and they didn't like you back and you and your best friend go into a car and just sob to the most random song, (laughs) but you're just sobbing together. But... I also can sit there and empathize with, you know, Laurie Metcalf's character who is seeing her daughter do things that she's like, I don't understand why you're doing this. You have all of this opportunity and all you want to do is instead of playing it safe or instead of playing it smart, you just want to go be frivolous and attend some school in New York City. And it's just, there's just so much in the movie that you could just sit there and try to unpack it and then you would find it's like a russian nesting doll of emotions you think that you got to it and all of a sudden there's more and you just can keep going for ages i mean shit the oh i mean if you watch ladybird and you don't see it as a mother daughter thing like you're you're wrong you're just straight up wrong i'm sorry i mean the movie opens with the what is it the grapes of wrath on like this kick-ass like uh clamshell style cassette from the library hell yeah like the stuff that when you try to pull the cassette out it's like like it just Mm -hmm. rips the plastic out i don't know in a digital age sometimes i just miss like some of those artifacts i don't know you never hear that shit anymore no no that physical media and i just And it's so funny because, like, I think that so much of it is a mother-daughter story, but I think that the central love story and the whole thing is between Lady Bird and Julie because I think that her best friend is her true love throughout the entire Mm -hmm. thing. It doesn't matter how many boys she, like, writes their name on her wall or, you know, tries to corner at a party. Um when she hears towards the end crash into me and she's like can you take me to julie's house and someone's like who's who's julie she's like she's my best friend like are you kidding me like take me to this human's (laughs) house right now and yeah i just think that that's and i find that very interesting when you look at the work that beanie feldstein has done after lady bird so much of her work is about people's true love story is not between them and like a romantic partner it's between them and their best friend uh so i love that for her i love the beanie feldstein loving your best friend cinematic universe um but i think that there's that that tension between marion laurie metcalf's character and lady bird is so interesting and even just the ways in which they'll bicker and then immediately something will just 
pull them out of it. And it's like yeah. they weren't even bickering two seconds ago. Absolutely. It, it just is so authentic. It's that uh, you can kind of read it as the, uh, oh, they're just two sides of the same coin thing, which in essence they are. But there's something, um, I, I don't know, it's more like, I guess their priorities are straight, but also they feed each other's insecurities. Like, you're the most, mm -hmm. it, it's kind of like Emily Blunt and Rosemary DeWitt and Sister Sister. Like, if you're comfortable with somebody that you know that they are willing to stay there while you're at your worst... But the problem is your worst and their worst feeding to each other's worst. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, you know that you could just snap out of it if something like more prioritizing like pops up or whatnot. But uh, this is as therapeutic for Lori Metcalf to deal with Lady Bird as it is eventually for Lady Bird to deal with her mom. And I don't know if it's the whole like mom being wounded by past mistakes or like past mm -hmm. promise and just doesn't want her daughter to be hurt maybe she's just working out her own shit like i know if she's hurt i'm gonna be hurt too one because i could have stopped it or like could have interfered and two because it's just me reliving the same shit with my daughter again and uh the one that got me this time around and maybe it's just because like 2017 would be maybe three years before i became a dad and just mm -hmm. recently married tracy letts uh that scene when he she finally makes it to NYU and he's in the uh, loan office and he says something to the extent of like, okay, so if we remortgage the house, where are we at? Like mm -hmm. immediate fucked me up. Because it's that realization that like, oh my God, without a second thought, yeah, I would do that for this kid. Mm -hmm. And like, why? And I've been watching movies where it's people uh, recognizing that they are not the story anymore their children are and that's okay and being comfortable with that despite you know in any lesser movie tracy let's going for the same job as his son would be a point of contention or like comedy it legitimately sounds like something out of like a weird sitcom but just the comfort and the kindness with which he plays it like straightens the tie and like brushes his shoulders off he's just like all right you go get him like just because I'm your dad going for the same job as you doesn't mean that you're not going to give this your all. Go for it. Just that selflessness that comes with being a parent at your very best. And uh, I guess that's a two-sided coin too. Like Tracy Letts is like the best a parent can be at their best of times. And then Lori Metcalf can be like your insecurities and your fears. And you're trying not to sink into the same mistakes as an adult. And, uh, I mean, the way they fight, too, like, she really puts a lot of shit that has mm -hmm. nothing to do with Lady Bird on Lady Bird, and Lady Bird just, like, explodes in adolescent rage and, like, throws a yeah. plate or some shit, piece of paper. But, yeah, her being like, oh, your father lost his job, and you want to go here fucking around with New York, and it's just like, yeah. whoa, man. Just, I don't know, just yeah. seeing that sort of, like, fighting match go on for so long and just uh have you ever seen a movie called baby teeth yes that's the one with um is it eliza scanlon yes eliza scanlon yeah that was mm -hmm. a movie that i really fell in love with too and i find uh 
similar to what you're saying, like you could be 17, 35, or 40, you're still human, you're still learning, and watching uh, Ben Mendelsohn and Essie Davis like fuck up their oh, lives yeah. as, you know, uh, Liza Scanlon and Toby Davis are dealing with, or Toby, fuck, the guys, the, the guy, you know, the, yes. the boyfriend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, the anyway, boyfriend. As, as they're fucking up everything else, it's just like this bittersweet feeling of like, oh yeah, we're fucked up, but at least we can still have time to learn. Like, you don't mm-hmm. have to know your shit at 40. You still have an entire lifetime to get your shit together, basically, and it's weirdly hopeful. I don't know. I find movies like that just, they draw me in, too. So, yeah. 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 The, I find, so, what I find so interesting about the Tracy Letts character is that he is, like, he shows up, he is empathetic, he's going to validate you exactly where you are, but he will not show his hand he does not want to bother anyone with his own shit that's happening. And so sometimes he almost sacrifices his own happiness for other people. But then you have Marion, who at one point talked about the fact that her parents, her mother was an alcoholic. And so all of a sudden you're like, wow, that makes so much sense as to why she has these really high expectations for Lady Bird because here's a woman who never had stability in her life and all she's trying to do is bring stability to her daughters. And so she's like, why is she still dicking around? (laughs) Uh, Like she has two parents who love her, who make sure that she goes to a nice school and has all of these things. Why even with all of that, is she choosing to, you know, not spend Thanksgiving with us and come home and get stoned with her friends. And why is she doing these things? And it's, it is so much of like a woman trying to protect her daughter from having to be a human with, and then finally learning to lean into the fact that it's like, oh yeah, she has to be a person in all of her messiness too. Um, And I especially love, that Lady Bird kind of always plays it as like, oh, her mom is just so strict and nah, I don't care what my mom thinks. And then when they go dress shopping for prom. Holy fuck. And she says, I don't, but I don't understand why you don't like me. And Marion responds with, well, of course I love you. And she's like, yeah, but. Do you like Do you me? like me? And when uh. she's like, I just want you to be the best version that you can be. And it's like, oh, wow, like, here it is. It's it's not that the tension is that she and her mom are always at odds. It's that she just wants to be so seen and lo- liked by her mom that she does things to push her mom away because she's so scared that her mom will never like her. And it's just, it's so heartbreakingly good. And it's also just such a testament to the way that Greta Gerwig writes um, that she can just kind of in so few words say so much. Um, it, that, that's like the scene for me. That's when I was like, this is one of the greatest movies ever made. <laughs> no, it's just the obligation behind the word love mm-hmm. that's in there. Like yeah. your parents, I birthed you. Of course I love you. It's like, but it's not the fact that you're a parent that makes your connection with me. I want you to like, like if you like someone, 
it's because they please you like they are somebody in their like in their whole self they are the ones that you know you in, enjoy being with and so that mm-hmm. scene god that one is a tearjerker and like a heartbreaker too just um mm-hmm. yeah it's god. it's just so good i love it it it's painful but um i still love it so much i mean you, you kind of gotta love it because it's painful because it's honest like yeah. the, the good good art always is that you know yeah yeah it's but i but i also love the fact that it's not like oh here it is like this just strict comedy like it's also or the strict drama like there's yeah. comedic aspects like i love her and tracy he's driving her to school and they're listening to alanis morissette and she's like you know that alanis morissette wrote the song in 10 minutes and he's like i can believe it it's just <laughs> like it's just so quick and it's like that is something a dad would say if he's listening to something going like i don't understand or like this you don't think tracy Letts likes alanis morissette I don't think he liked that Alanis Morissette really? song. Oh, man. I don't know that. And also, maybe there's like... Okay, this is very. This is going to sound really weird. I can smell this movie. Because anytime yeah. we're in that car, I can smell my dad's 96 Honda Accord in the backseat yep. playing like Alanis Morissette and Third Eye Blonde and Dave Matthews and like the alternative rock of that mm-hmm. era. Just I don't know. There's such a tactility to this thing and a, a, a moment and a place and uh i guess i guess part of that is like my childhood the analog stuff that mm-hmm. i i feel have been completely scrubbed by now but i i do miss uh i love uh god i love the priest and oh yeah yeah you know, when he's got a when he's trying to challenge him to the crying contest and he fucking gets it god what is that guy's name oh stephen henderson i think uh, yeah, who's yeah. in Fences. He's really good. And, uh... Yeah, talking... he was most recent... He was yeah, recently in Cause... He was recently in Causeway. So I recommend oh, was he? That, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow, that's He's something very... I gotta catch up on. It's a very small part, but I was like, <gasps> it's the priest from Lady Bird. Oh, man, have you seen Fences? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, dude. He's so fucking good in that movie. And in Dune. He's great in Dune, too. He's like one of those new guys that like pops up in everything. And every time you mm-hmm. watch him, it's like a marker. It's like a stamp of quality. Everything that he's in is great. Yeah. It's, I also love, uh, Lois Smith as the nun. Yeah. And I especially love when Lady Bird does the just married on the back of her car. And she's like, yeah. I'll pay for whatever damages. And she's like, no, actually, I thought it was really funny. And I'm like, see, nuns do have senses of humor. Nuns have senses of humor. <laughs> a, lot of par- a lot of parallels between the movies this episode, huh? I, I have- love to be consistent. <laughs> uh, do you find yourself, like, when you were making this list, what distinguished choices for you? Like, did you have other movies in mind that you could have picked well so on the so lady bird and your sister sister make my letterboxed uh top four movies 
And the other two on that are um, When Harry Met Sally and uh, An Unmarried Woman, uh, which are both amazing, fantastic films. Um, But I kind of wanted to be like, I wanted to choose films that I also remembered from my childhood because that clear, those four movies are clearly from, I was an adult and I watched these movies and they have become very informative um, in the way that I ingest media and watch films and all of that fun stuff um so i wanted to hearken back to movies that i remembered watching as a kid that i felt held up because i went through that kick of watching movies from my childhood and i will tell you they don't all hold up (laughs) so i that i went with those ones really to you know add diversity but I mean, Lady Bird and Your Sister's Sister are my two favorite movies of all time. They're the ones that I will annoyingly make people watch it. I dragged my friend to the... My friend who only watches Marvel and Fast and Furious movies also went and saw Lady Bird with me because that... (laughs) I just love that movie. Um, I even was in New York and met Beanie Feldstein once. We just happened to cross each other's paths Oh, wow. And instead of being a calm, collected, cool person, I just screamed at the top of my lungs, oh my God, I love Lady Bird. Um, like, it just is a movie that. What did I she can't... say back? Uh, she was the kindest human. Uh, she stopped and talked for, with me for a while about the movie. Uh, Booksmart was coming out and it wasn't released yet. So she talked about working with Olivia Wilde and Caitlin Deaver. Oh, and she's fuck, just that movie's so good. Yeah, she's a gem of a human. And like to this day, I will watch Lady Bird and be like, Julie, in quotation marks, I met her. Do you remember what you talked with her about, uh, specifically with Lady Bird? Um, I mean, like she just kind of talked about what an incredible experience it was and how much she loved working with Greta Gerwig and Saoirse Ronan. And um, I brought up Booksmart because that was also Olivia Wilde's kind of solo feature directorial debut. And she only had nice things to say about that working environment and how wonderful it was to bond with Caitlin in that movie and then I, my soul left my body and I was like, I gotta go <laughs> collect myself. But she, um, yeah. And then she also told me to go watch her brother's film mid nineties, which was at the New York film festival while I oh, was wow. there that year. That's yeah. cool. It's like, Hey, while you're here, go check out uh, my buddy, my brother's movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was just like, I'm, I'm literally leaving tomorrow but i promise i i promise you i will go see this movie because you told me to and i did (laughs) good shit Uh, what do you find how um the movies that you watched as a kid versus the movies that you watched as an adult do you find that you value the same things from you know being a perspective of a child to an adult or do you find like a shift in that like what do you value in movies as a kid versus as an adult? I, so I think one of the big things is that I've always been drawn to like strong female characters, not to sound like Netflix right now, but like strong female (laughs) characters have always been a, 
just a cornerstone in what I enjoy because I don't want to sit there like it feels very um belittling to sit there and watch a film about a woman who is two-dimensional when the only women that I know are these fully lived gloriously beautiful monsters um and when did you uh did you ever did you come to that realization as in a young age that like there's this weird dichotomy yes well because so i watched a lot of my mom kind of helped form my love of like current or somewhat current movies because we used to go to blockbusters and i would just start i would just start to rent all of the movies in someone's filmography so like I've seen every horrible Jake Gyllenhaal movie. I've also seen every one of his best movies. Um, lots of Sandra Bullock happened in that time. Lots of Reese Witherspoon. And I always found, like, Reese Witherspoon, I think, was such an important part in that realization because watching her in some of those rom-coms that she was in, um, there was sometimes not a lot for her to do. And I'm like, that's so weird because... In Cruel Intentions, she was typecast into a place where she was being an ingenue, but she really fought against that as her character of saying, like, I'm more than just this virginal-esque woman. Like, I'm actually an interesting human being. And, you know, in Legally Blonde, here she is combating the, you know, dumb blonde stereotype. But, um... Yeah, if there were, like, movies um, that she was in where she was just one-dimensional, I'm like, are we sure? Because she wasn't, she has so many layers. Um, Nicole Kidman was another person, too, who, you know, you look at her in, like, Batman or Days of Thunder, yeah. and it's just, like, hot redhead. Um, but then you get to see her in, like, The Others or Fuck, Practical yeah. Magic. My wife and showed she, me that when we were dating The Others. That's oh, my a- God, what... Top, that like, should have been five twists of all time for me, man. Holy shit. That should have been the movie she was nominated for that year. Um, but I, you know, I really, because I was watching these women be in these movies and watching how, some, especially early on in their careers, they were these one dimensional, you know, either tiny roles or if they had a speaking part that they were just there to serve the men and then as their careers blossomed you got to see oh well now nicole kidman's not going is not playing tom cruise's wife she's um playing a woman who um is a witch and she and her sister have to fight back against the man who is a domestic abuser and she has to use that in this movie that surprisingly practical magic only has a 22 percent on rotten tomato um that's a crime um but you know she she plays this wild character who all of a sudden you get to the core of it and it's like she's wild and rebellious because she's been so hurt by the things that she's experienced and the only other person that would understand that is her sister who likes to play everything safe and so it's their conflict but also their bond that makes that movie so wonderful sandra bullock was in that movie her early career it was like 
boring comedies. I mean, Love Potion Number Nine is a horrible, horrible early Sandra Bullock movie. But then you see her in Practical Magic, where she's so wonderful and vulnerable. You see her in Miss Congeniality, where she plays this tough woman who then is like, all right, I will go and pretend and do the girly thing so that we can get to the bottom of this. Um, you know, I just, it, it was kind of like that adolescence time where all of a sudden I started to see, okay, like, I'm not here for Reese Witherspoon in Just Like Heaven. I'm here for Reese Witherspoon in Election. I'm here for yeah. her in, um, you know, as I got older, like I'm not watching Four Christmases. I'm watching Wild <laughs> because I love watching this woman get to be a messy, complicated, layered person who makes all of this individual's painful journey also seem equally beautiful. Um, so yeah, that's a very long answer to my mom made me watch a lot of blockbusters. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. Uh, who are your, you mentioned like Reese Witherspoon and Sandra Bullock and Nicole Kidman, like back, uh, in your adolescence. Oh who yeah. Who do you admire now? Uh, not necessarily, I'm assuming, uh, Greta Gerwig is on that list. I'm assuming like Saoirse Ronan, Rosemary DeWitt, any other newer actresses that you find yourself really gravitating to that have that same, that they're cut, cut from the same kind of cloth. Oh. I mean, I currently am on like a really big Rachel McAdams kick. I think that that's- Oh one my one. God, yes! <laughs> She's one of the best. Like, Oh! <laughs> I, the way that she can just move from genre to genre, she is just magic. Um, my, my favorite character actress, um, probably has to be Betty Gilpin, um, because she unfortunately gets relegated to, um, silent woman with tits a lot. Um, oh Jesus. But when, I didn't see that's, that. I, 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 I mean, see that's, that one on Netflix. She, um, oh yeah, she's sad in a sweater or, um, Sad you know. in a sweater. Oh God. Yeah. That's a... Um, but then when she Fox's gets, song? I mean, it sounds like one or, you know, a neutral milk hotel album. Um, <laughs> but she, but when she gets to be like big and brash, she is one of the most engaging people that you will ever See, uh, she was on the television series Glow. Uh, she played Debbie Egan and her wrestling ego, Liberty Bell. And it is one of my, her performance is the reason that I love that show so much. She is loud and angry and vulnerable and supportive and just wonderful. And um, I just am so looking forward to it seems like television has been a space where she's gotten to be a very powerful presence because I think in movies we look at women a lot for their bodies and not for their brain. And um, yeah, she was recently in Gaslit where she played Modine and she was just whip smart in that. Um, she's coming to, um, I think it's three women on Showtime um, she was in The Hunt, which for all of the mess around the movie, 
her performance, the movie at the end of the day is just a Betty Gilpin reel um, because she's just, she makes the oddest but pitch perfect choices in it. And um, yeah, I really watch Rachel McAdams and all of her movie and then watch Glow so that you can see Betty Gilpin just kill it. Uh, yeah. There was, uh, before the movies was the movies. It was the Daniel Berrios podcast. And in the Daniel Berrios podcast, I got, like, I was watching Doctor Strange, and I was just thinking, wow, Rachel McAdams is just, understands the assignment every single time, makes the movie better. Like, no matter what she does, she makes the movie great. And so there was a segment on that for a while, which was, um, what was it? Um, I would say something like, okay, let's talk about movies what's new, uh, what's recommended by someone, what's great, and what's Rachel McAdams up to? <laughs> there is a segment of that show dedicated to Rachel McAdams' films, and I was going down the fucking list. And from fucking, uh, I think it's Passion, the De Palma movie oh, that yeah. she's in, who's just like, if Regina George went to the corporate world, that's where she's at. Like, I saw this, like, terrible it's kind of like interesting for like a tv movie it's guilt by association where she plays this uh this girl stuck in the jail system it's a very small role it's like maybe five minutes she's like the new girl in the prison and uh this older woman has to like mentor her and whatever and uh eurovision i think is genius and she is the only reason that movie works nearly as well as she it does uh about time is a stone cold fucking masterpiece uh, just everything Rachel yeah. McAdams is, she makes it better. Yeah. I mean, the fact that from 2004 to 2005, she had Wedding Crashers, Mean Girls, yep. The Notebook, Red Eye, and The Family Stone. Like, there's just those two years alone shows that that woman can do. The Family the Stone range. is my favorite Christmas movie, so. I... I'm not as fond on it. I think it's the whole, like... I think it's Sarah Michelle Gellar's, like, New York says the wrong thing all the time thing kind of bugs me. Yeah. But Rachel McAdams with just, like, the mug of, like, coffee. Yeah. Just sipping it with the side eye. I love it. Yeah. That movie is also really great if you turn on the DVD commentary. Once again, I'm old. I love a DVD commentary and the Family Stones DVD commentary, I think adds so many layers to that movie that they couldn't put in to this mid-budget family dramedy um, that it's just, it's wonderful. I miss DVD commentaries. I used to to learn so much about movies with them and now, like, unless you pay 30 bucks or up the nose for Criterion, you just don't get that anymore. You don't. It's really a shame. Or like the making ofs. Like one of my favorites is Evil Dead 2. You watch like two hours of just the footage of people fucking around and having a great time and that. And just Yeah, it's a lost art, a DVD commentary. It is. It you youngins is. need to go, <laughs> go to the library and learn a thing or two. Yeah, get some physical media. Physical media forever. Uh, but yeah, that's going to be it for In 4 Films. Morgan Roberts, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, I thank hope you so everybody much for learned. Me. I hope everybody learned a little bit more about you because 
you're one of the people in the space that I just find myself gravitating to. Really know your shit. Love the movies that you love. I don't read as much of the work because I'm worried that, like, uh, I haven't seen half the shit you've recommended. Like, even in this episode, there's, uh, like, 80% of this stuff I've just never seen. So this is a lady who knows her shit. You need to follow her. Uh, What's your Twitter handle for everybody? Uh, It is MSMLRoberts. Yeah, and I'm just on Twitter talking about Lady Bird or a Lynn Shelton movie, probably. Absolutely. Uh, follow her work. Uh, she has a Substack. It's uh, Morgan's Movie Musings on Substack. Subscribe to that newsletter. If you haven't watched the movies that she's talking about, just like what I do on my emails, I just star it and I just leave it there. And that's like my wish list or my movie list to watch because whenever Morgan talks about a movie, it, it's probably really fucking good. That's going to be it for me. If you want to follow the movies, you can do so on Twitter at the movies underscore pod. I'm going to be talking about whatever movies I decide to talk about. Black Panther, um, seeing the whale at some point at the end of the month. Uh, and then December, the year end stuff, and we go straight into the new year. But yeah, everybody, follow Morgan. She's great at what she does. And again, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much. All right, until later, friends. Y'all take care. Bye. Into me, and I come into you.